You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Welcome to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'm coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it is already Thursday morning. And being here in Japan, of course, the news and headlines are dominated by what's happening at Fukushima. And although, of course, my main website is CorbettReport.com, I also have FukushimaUpdate.com, where we're keeping a close daily eye on the headlines that continue to emerge from the nuclear crisis taking place just about 400 miles northeast from where I'm sitting right now. And some of the latest headlines posted up there at FukushimaUpdate.com why Fukushima workers are facing threats and stigma, uh, TEPCO weighed using firearms to avoid Fukushima explosion, uh, Fukushima teens find parallels in Hiroshima's experience and hope, uh, Yamiuri op-ed, restricted public disclosure invites public distrust, talking about the heavily doctored video conference footage that TEPCO is apparently now releasing about what was taking place during those uh, first few days of that crisis. But perhaps one of the most relevant headlines for today's purposes, Fukushima Hot Springs Town to build geothermal plant after quake. And uh, people who have been listening to my podcast recently know that I have been talking about alternative energy and how the alternative energy solutions are coming up more and more in the mainstream discourse, certainly here in Japan and I think around the world, in the wake of the Fukushima crisis, which has once again put the question of nuclear safety front and center. So tonight we're going to be talking about another possible solution for uh, replacing the type of nuclear reactors that, uh, that have caused the problem at Fukushima and, of course, at Chernobyl and other places around the world. And uh, strangely enough, this alternative idea is also a nuclear energy idea, but a very different type of idea. So for more on that, we're going to turn to the director of an organization called the Thorium Energy Alliance at thoriumenergyalliance.com. And just reading from the website's about page, the Thorium Energy Alliance is a 501c3 educational advocacy organization. We are a nonprofit group composed of engineers, scientists, and concerned citizens interested in reducing the cost of energy and protecting the health of the planet and the future of the human race. Our objective is to lay the foundation for a thorium energy future. To arrive at that future as quickly as possible, we must educate our leaders and the public on the need to create a working thorium-powered reactor. And we have on the line with us the director of the Thorium Energy Alliance, John Kutch. So, John, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it is good to have you here to talk about this subject, as I say, increasingly important in this, uh, certainly in Japan, where we're having more and more of a societal conversation about turning to alternative energy solutions and trying to transition off of the uranium nuclear reactor paradigm that uh, Japan and many other countries are on. But uh, just uh, briefly here, we only have a minute or so before the first break. Why don't you just tell us about the Thorium Energy Alliance and how it came together? Uh for my part, uh, it uh, was a request. I run an engineering consultancy, and uh, uh, very quickly we had a, a client ask us to look into some materials, including uh, thorium, as part of an industrial process. And uh, by looking into it, uh, me and my guys had uh, found, uh, the you know, back then in 2005, found this uh, just starting community of uh, scientists and interested people and 
from there, uh, we just didn't let it go. So I decided that the most effective thing we could do would be to uh, start a uh, advocacy organization to try and get the, uh, our leaders to uh, make some movement on making thorium uh, an energy source for the future. Exactly right, and I think this is having more of an effect, obviously, as we see the conversation turning more towards uh, alternatives to the current nuclear energy paradigm. So for those of you, uh, of you out there in the audience who might be scratching your head right now wondering what thorium is and what a liquid fluoride thorium reactor might be, we'll, we'll be back to discuss that more, once again talking to John Kutch of thoriumenergyalliance.com. So hold on right there. We'll be back to get more into this right after these messages. All right, welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you're tuned into Corbett Report Radio on this Wednesday night edition of the broadcast, where we are talking to John Kutch, the director of the Thorium Energy Alliance. And once again, their website is ThoriumEnergyAlliance.com. And as always, there will be a link to their website in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com. But, uh, John, let's let's start getting into the actual specifics of thorium, what it even is. I'm sure there are a lot of people out in the audience who, who may have heard of this concept, but I'm sure there are many more who haven't. And uh, we do have a lay audience, uh, like myself, not, not trained engineers. So let's start breaking this down for people. What is thorium, and uh, how can we actually make a fuel out of this? Sure. Uh, you, can, you can still hear me okay, correct? Absolutely. Okay, want to make sure through all that the commercial break that we've held in there. Uh, thorium uh, is pretty straightforward if you look at the periodic table. Thorium is uh, number 90 on the periodic table, and it's uh, one of uh, the three known nuclear fuels, thorium, uranium, and plutonium. And uh, uh, so... Uh, that just basically means that thorium has uh, uh, the ability to uh, create a lot of energy from the fact that it's a very large atom and that it is uh, different, though, from uh, uranium and plutonium in that uh, it is fertile but not fizzle. And that means that uh, uranium and plutonium by themselves will uh, in chain react just by uh, being in close proximity because they are uh, releasing neutrons, whereas thorium uh, just wants to react, but it just can't. It's a very, very stable atom, and that's, uh, that gets into the attractiveness of why uh, uh, myself and so many people are interested in thorium. Excuse me. And... Uh, uh, so you could run down the list of uh, the fact that thorium is a very stable atom. It's got a half-life of 14.5 billion years. It's an alpha emitter, unlike uranium, which means that you could uh, you could technically hold thorium in, the, in your hand. Your skin is thick enough of a barrier that uh, you wouldn't be uh, endangering yourself. It's uh, it's much more abundant than uranium. Uh, the way you use thorium, you don't need to enrich it. There's no such thing as highly enriched thorium. <laughs> you just use thorium as it is. And uh, it's a, it comes naturally as part of uh, uh, refining and uh, acquiring rare earths. 
And so uh, that just is the start of uh, the, the reasons why thorium's attractive. It's basically it's much easier to handle, it's much cleaner, much more readily available. Uh, it's safer to uh, utilize the energy that is pent up inside it. And uh, basically all you need is a, uh, a neutron source of something to start the reaction, and it'll sustain itself up until the point that you withdraw the neutron source, and then the reaction stops. So you can't get uh, you can't get a runaway, out of control reaction. Right, and as I understand, I mean, this is one of the very important differences with the current paradigm with uranium fueled reactors, where basically you're trying to control the reaction at all times, and so safety is all about trying to use control rods and other other safety uh, devices to try to keep that reaction under control. But with a thorium right. reactor, you would actually be having to actively make the reaction happen. Yeah, I always tell people that. Uh, First, we got to tell the audience that there's two things we're talking about here. Is we're talking about thorium as a fuel, and then we're talking about using thorium in a specific type of reactor called a molten salt reactor, an MSR. And these MSRs are real. Uh, the United States uh, built several of them 50, 60 years ago, ran them for thousands of hours. So this isn't a theoretical reactor. This isn't a paper reactor. This is a type of reactor that has real-world experience. Obviously, it needs to be commercialized, and that's a big part of what the Thorium Energy Alliance is about. But uh, the, th- the molten salt reactor, uh, we believe, would work best utilizing thorium as a fuel. But that doesn't mean that that's the only fuel you could use. You could use plutonium. You could use uranium. Uh, uh, but the inherent safety of the molten salt reactor is what people around Fukushima would have wished that TEPCO and anybody else who have built light water reactors over the last, or boiling water reactors, uh, they wish that they would have gone with this type of reactor just as the inventor of the light water reactor and the MSR had hoped all civilian reactors would be. Uh, you give me a moment. To, back in 1962, there's a report that President Kennedy had asked for because they were just trying to figure out what should the civilian nuclear power uh, world be made up from and what kind of reactors. They'd, no one knew back then. And Alvin Weinberg and uh, the committees that put this report together basically said, look, uh, one of the best civilian reactor technologies that should be pursued would be a molten salt reactor because of its characteristics of being inherently safe, walkable safe, they don't use water, you won't have hydrogen explosions like you did at uh, Fukushima, you can't get the uh, disassociation of the coolant because the coolant is the fuel in many cases, in, in many of the original designs and current designs, if you do have a catastrophic failure, such as what happened in Fukushima, the system would simply shut down, solidify, drain itself into a safe storage area. Uh, even if you had a truly catastrophic event, the the fuel is a is contained within a salt, and the salt doesn't melt until 450 degrees Celsius. 
and and just as you said, you have to keep that reaction going. So I always tell people these reactors are like opposite land, where a modern light water reactor or boiling water reactor, you're constantly, constantly trying to keep the reaction from running out of control. On a molten salt reactor, you're constantly trying to keep the action uh, reaction to be sustained. And the second that you really put any condition at the reactor that is anything but optimal, the salt begins to cool off and solidify or drain away and solidify. It's, uh, it is the best, by far, walk-away safe, inherently safe reactor design. And the tragedy is that we had it 50 years ago, and we didn't uh, pursue it much past the uh, mid-1970s. And, and there is a fascinating history behind that that I want to get into. But first, I think a lot of people out there might have some sort of general idea about how a boiling water reactor works by, by heating uh, water and then uh, using that in an exchange with lower pressure water to turn yep. uh, turbines. But, but what does a molten uh, salt reactor actually look like? If you go to the website, thoriumenergyalliance.com, you can see uh, examples classic uh, illustrations of what the molten salt reactor layout looks like and uh, uh, all the way up to very technical drawings of uh, what a, a molten salt reactor facility would uh, uh, would uh, look like. Essentially, they're, they're very, very simple, very elegant designs. They, unlike a light water reactor or boiling water reactor, you don't have these quintuple and quadruple repetitive and redundant pumps trying to circulate water and coolant around under tremendous pressure. And because of that, they're kept within giant containment buildings and they're cooling the fuel coated in zirconium, which actually hates water so that if it's ever exposed to air and water, the zirconium uh, cladding will, will have a terrible reaction as we saw in Fukushima. A molten salt reactor is just the opposite. The molten salt reactor runs at atmosphere. It has one pump, if it has any, and that's just to circulate the coolant past a heat exchanger where the heat, the very high heats, 700, 800 degrees Celsius, are exchanged and used for work, whether that's to turn a turbine or to run some sort of chemical process or industrial process. It's not under pressure. You don't need large containment buildings. There's no water in the system. So you won't get this large buildup of hydrogen if a reaction ran out of control. If a reaction did run out of control, you would actually melt a plug in the bottom of the reactor chamber and it would melt away and drain the the fuel into a containment chamber where it would solidify. Uh, So it's it's a much simpler design. There's just two loops, uh, a circulating loop going through the reactor and uh, an energy loop taking power from a heat exchanger off of that circulating loop and using it for work. And there's even design today that just use no pumps. They just use uh, natural convection. And so that's even yet simpler. There's not even any pump involved at all. You're just using the natural convection of the fuel to uh, circulate it. It's, a, it's a fascinating that we we let this uh, technology pass us by. 
It certainly is, and it's uh, it's kind of a tragic history, but in a way it's hopeful because people are rediscovering that history and, uh, and organizations like the Thorium Energy Alliance are doing their best to educate the public about that, so hopefully we can at least spur a little bit of that conversation tonight. Once again, talking to John Kutch of ThoriumEnergyAlliance.com. We're coming up against another break, so let's take a breather for some messages, but uh, when we come back, we'll start getting into that history of the Thorium idea and uh, just how this idea got lost in the mix and how it's being brought back so stay tuned right there we'll be back after these messages all right welcome back to the program friends james corbett of corbettreport.com coming to you tonight with john kutch the director of the thorium energy alliance once again their website is thoriumenergyalliance.com where they have links and uh, information and resources on this idea of using thorium as a fuel and also the uh, related idea of the molten salt reactor uh, design which is a uh, design alternative to the current uh, boiling water reactor design and of course uh, an alternative to the idea of of using uranium as the fuel source. Uh, there's uh, a lot of different things and areas to go into, but first perhaps we should start uh, looking at some of that history that we've been alluding to in the last couple of segments here, talking about how there has been, uh, well, basically since the 1950s, a number of uh, studies and experiments that have actually been conducted about this. So, John, let's go back in time a little bit. Tell us a little bit about how this idea was developed, who were some of the people behind the development of this idea, and where and why it got lost in the mix. Uh, we, uh, in the United States, uh, there are some other countries that uh, were looking into this once uh, word got out about uh, this general idea of being able to essentially uh, melt the thorium into the uh, into the salt uh, to make a liquid uh, fueled reactor. Uh, I should say, you know, going sort of have to make people here switch back and forth. One little thing about thorium is it's not absolutely not water soluble, so that's another thing that makes it very safe. It's also uh, uh, our body cannot use it organically, so uranium is highly water soluble and. Uh, which obviously for living things <laughs> makes it uh, uh, kind of undesirable since it can uh, get into waterworks and such. But the thorium uh, cannot uh, be dissolved in water. So if they wanted to make a liquid-fueled reactor, uh, reactor back in the 50s, they had to come up with some way, you know, what, what will thorium dissolve into? And they realized, oh, well, if we make these very unique salts, uh, we could... Uh, essentially uh, dissolve the thorium into the salt and it retains its uh, properties and yet it's uh, contained within this uh, with the salt. And so uh, thanks to uh, the foresight that uh, we had back in the 50s, uh, some funding was granted uh, to develop these types of reactors. So the, one of the original thoughts was that they would be used for a, a nuclear bomber and that they'd be able to fly like a submarine. It was before we had intercontinental ballistic missiles, and and so they thought, well, how will we uh, keep the bombs in the air for a long, long time, just like the submarines are going to be kept in water for a long time? Uh, they knew it wasn't probably a really great idea to fly a reactor around, but it gave them the funding. <laughs> so, so what the heck, any port in a storm, right? And uh, it was very successful. All the experiments were 
very successful, very high energy density. These reactors are relatively small, even if they put out a huge amount of power. And uh, the final and biggest experiment was the MSRE at Oak Ridge National Lab. Now it was a molten salt reactor experiment, and that was a, a large experiment where they built a large facility, built an entire hot cell for the uh, for the entire reactor. The reactor was uh, rated at about six megawatts, and it uh, it ran for many thousands of hours, and uh, very safe. Uh, there were some critics at the time who were concerned that the salt would eat away at this uh, newly developed material called Hastelloy. And uh, Hastelloy uh, is a very high nickel stainless steel. Uh, they uh, they since proved that the, the salt was not eating away at the Hastelloy. And so uh, that was one of the only safety things that they were really uh, worried about. Uh, the uh, And then they realized that these reactors were... Uh, also had the capability, although you probably wouldn't go out of your way to do this, but they had the capability to be load followers, which meant that as you use, you can imagine like your radiator in your car, if the radiator got hot, it pushes out the fluid into a reservoir, and as it cools down, it pulls the fluid back in. Uh, these reactors have the ability to manage their power load dynamically like that, whereas light water reactors have to be Managed in a much, much more gingerly uh, fashion, and the rods have to be pulled in and out, and the control rods have to be pulled in and out to uh, modify the uh, the reaction. So, you know, you can, there's a lot of mechanical <laughs> things going on in a light water reactor that just aren't happening in a uh, self-regulating molten salt reactor. So, as we got to the end of the experiment, where they wanted to, you know, they had successfully run this experiment for five years. Uh, in the beginning of the 60s, I mean the 70s, uh, the project was essentially slowly uh, strangled and killed off. <laughs> it, just, it was a small project, and there was lots of reasons. Uh, industry had already decided that they wanted to use light water reactors, and uh, the paradigm back then was that Everyone thought we were running out of uranium, and so they they wanted breeder reactors that could breed uh, plutonium. If you remember back then, we were making thousands of bombs, and uh, Nixon and his uh, management folk wanted to redirect funds towards the breeder reactor program, and a big reason for that was to send jobs away from Oak Ridge uh, to... Um, they wanted to send them over to uh, uh, California. So there's all sorts of reasons why. All right, hold it right there. We have to take a break. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back. Once again, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Corbett Report Radio. And, of course, my other website is FukushimaUpdate.com, where I'm keeping a pretty much a daily eye on the latest headlines coming out of Fukushima and the nuclear crisis that's unfolding there that has precipitated a larger societal conversation here in Japan and in other societies across the world about the need for the current uranium boiling water reactor nuclear paradigm 
to which uh, so much of the world is uh, unfortunately wed at this point uh, with many, uh, I think somewhere over 20 of the same type of Mark I uh, boiling water reactor uh, designs that was used in the Fukushima plant that was such a problem is are are currently situated in the United States. So this is obviously a, uh, a larger problem, not just for Japan, but for many different places around the world. We see countries like Germany pledging to get off of nuclear power uh, to the extent that they're able, and that still being a possibility on the table here in Japan. But as we were talking about there in the last segment, Part of the billion-pound gorilla in the room is the nuclear weapons industry, which the current uh, paradigm of nuclear reactors grew up around, and there are obviously large political and economic forces at play in that are invested in the current paradigm and not quite so willing to jump to the molten salt reactor paradigm. However, much more uh, safe and profitable that may, may be. So, uh, John, let's start talking about some of those forces that are arrayed against this idea. Uh, what what are the some of the stakes at play, and, and how does the nuclear weapons industry play into this? Well, uh, I guess you could say that today the you know the beat the Department of Energy in the United States is uh, uh, still heavily involved in the nuclear weapons business, uh, keeping a majority of its budget to maintain the stockpile of nuclear weapons. It would be interesting to find out uh, what the exact cost is for maintaining that stockpile, but uh, it's an alpha we'll ever exactly know. In terms of uh, what I mentioned before, uh, uh, part of why you know, some part of why the MSR was not pursued further into a more commercial reactor. Uh, there's a lot of reasons, and it's, you know, it's, a lot of it isn't uh, exactly like a conspiracy or anything. It's just uh, the way things work when you start building a supply chain, and that supply chain is used to not only supply electricity, but supply the materials needed for uh, making weapons. Yeah, at a time when we were building lots and lots of weapons, you can tell when uh, you can tell pretty easily you know, what's going to win out a reactor that uh, was inherently safe and didn't uh, create uh, weapons grade material, or uh, reactors that uh, did. So that was one strike against it. And the other strike, basically, you know, the, one of the simplest things was it was political and jobs uh, could be put into states where votes were needed and you could uh, sacrifice a small, relatively small program and uh, who would care? <laughs> Except uh, 50 years, 40 years later when people woke, woke up and realized this technology had existed at one time and uh, realized the, the tragedy that could be 40 years into uh, the molten salt reactor paradigm instead of 40 years into an extremely costly and very uh, unsafe uh, light water reactor uh, paradigm. Although, I got to say, you know, uh, just to be fair, light water reactors are still the, the safest energy source you know, on the planet. They develop huge amounts of electricity, carbon-free, and there aren't anything to, uh, like the injuries or deaths 
associated with any other source. You know, you look at coal, even look at some of the renewables, and the amount of resources, the amount of poison that's put into the atmosphere, the amount of deaths, natural gas explosions every year kill hundreds of, of people. Uh, so we pay a very high price for our fossil fuel-based uh, energy, and uh, we're going to pay a very, very high price if we continue using some of this supposedly renewable green energy uh, that cannot supply baseload power, uses vast amounts of resources, and we're basically shifting all the uh, toxic waste that is generated by developing solar cells, for example, on the poor Chinese. Right. Well, I, I certainly, yes, I certainly do understand a lot of the, the concerns about that and, and the boondoggle that is wind power and other such uh, proposed alternative solutions that aren't really solutions yep. in the long run. But uh, let's uh, also, uh, on the note of, uh, I, I'm familiar with the arguments of uh, nuclear power being one of the safest, but I think that's also based on skewed data because as the New York Academy of Science published a study, of, a meta-study a few years ago of epidemiological studies from uh, Chernobyl, which recalculates the number of dead as a result of Chernobyl from the official estimate of some, somewhere in the neighborhood of a few dozen to one million. And uh, personally, I have my own misgivings about that study, but I think that certainly the uh, the number, the official number of dead from Chernobyl is should be revised upwards because it's one of those ongoing disasters that we can't ever blame a particular cancer on the, what happened at Chernobyl, but we do know that there has been a huge effect that uh, unfortunately is not calculated because of a secret ag- agreement that WHO and IAEA entered into back way back in the 1950s, actually, um, 50 years ago, to basically not uh, allow the WHO to really conduct studies into the health effects of nuclear disasters, because that was the realm of the IAEA, which is there to promote the nuclear energy industry. So there's a lot of history to go in there to suss out what sure. the true true nature of um, the cost of nuclear energy is in that regard. But let's bring some of the well, listeners into this conversation. When I uh, aired my podcast recently that brought up the idea of thorium and molten salt reactors, I, I received an email from someone. Uh, it's grammatically um, lamentable, so I'm, I'm not sure I can exactly parse out what's being said here, but perhaps you can help me. I got this email. It says, uh, check out how long do the reactors last, and in brackets, approximately five years. Also, the metals alloys for the liquid lead heat shield can't handle the temperatures, and graphite is too brittle. The radiation is more deadly. The half-life is short, yes, but it's shorter since the change in accepted radiation levels. Again, I'm not sure that's even (laughs) English, but uh, but perhaps you can parse out a little bit of what that listener is trying to get out there. Is there anything to that? Well, quickly, I'll I'll say that. Molten salt reactor, the key word in there is salt. It's not a liquid metal reactor. There are liquid metal reactors using lead bismuth, sodium. Uh, that's not what we're from, you know, that's not what uh, we think are uh, uh, the best uh, reactor designs. Uh, although lead bismuth uh, reactors have been run successfully and safely, uh, the, it's, uh, the reactor lives as designed are much closer to 50 to 100 years. As I said before, the, uh, the corrosion is not the problem that some people thought it would be. Uh, the uh, graphite that's mentioned in that letter is not used in most of the modern reactor designs. The graphite moderators uh, do not have to be used. If you have your 
uh, fuel salt designed correctly and your, your reactor designed uh, not to use the graphite. The guy's right. If uh, if graphite were used, there are problems with graphite swelling and, and having uh, those sorts of uh, issues. But since there's no graphite in it, there's no worries about graphite. And uh, the guy also brings up a very good point. Uh, the uh, the actinide byproducts from a molten salt reactor, because the molten salt reactor uh, inherently uses up the fuel, whether it's thorium or uranium or plutonium, it uses up the fuel, uh, 99% of the fuel, you could even say 99.99% of the fuel, because you're constantly able to take the waste products out of the fuel and handle them, uh, and you don't kill the reaction don't let the uh, buildup of heavy metals and other contaminants. What happens in a light water reactor is you're only using 1 to 3, maybe 5% of the fuel energy, and then you have to take these fuel bundles out because the zirconium cladding in a light water reactor cannot handle uh, any more than about 18 months of exposure. And so every 18, uh, every 18 months you're opening up uh, uh, a solid fuel reactor and removing about a third of the fuel rods. So I, I guess I misspoke. They can handle more than 18 months. What I'm saying is that the fuel rods, when they're put into the cooling tanks and they're put into the dry cast storage in the parking lots, those fuel rods still have up to 95, 97% of the energy that they went in with. So our parking lots at reactors are filled with vast amounts of energy that these molten salt reactors could take advantage of. All right. Well, let's let's uh, bring some of the callers into this conversation. Once again, the phone lines are up at 1-800-313-9443, but we have Chris from California waiting on the line. So, Chris, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks for taking my call, Jim. No problem. Um, I just, uh, let's see, I had a... Um, comment that I wanted to make about nuclear power in general. I've never heard a kosher argument for the use of nuclear power in general. It's dirty. It's dangerous. Uh, it kills millions of people, as we know, in the past. Um, Hiroshima, Fukushima, all the Shimas, just name it. You're in Japan, James. You know what I'm talking about. There are alternative uses of fuel and energy that we can use um, as opposed to nuclear energy. And I think um, intelligent people realize that. Um, All right, John, John let's, uh, well, first let's get John's comments on that. John, I have my own thoughts on that, but what, what, do, what would you say to that? Well, certainly uh, uh, alternative... What uh, I'm sure the, the caller imagines as an alternative will will never satisfy the, the energy needs. Millions of people have not died from uh, using a nuclear power. I will I will agree that the way we do nuclear power today is in fact uh, dirty and dangerous and highly enriching. The uranium is incredibly energy intensive and not the best use of our uh, our resources. But that's talking about today's paradigm, and I would hope that you would uh, have an open enough mind to realize that uh, we're talking about a very, very different, uh, almost 180-degree different 
method of using this natural material that we are surrounded by. Every let me make a point here that people don't realize or, or fail to, to accept is that we live in a very radioactive world. And everything around us, the concrete in the sidewalks, the granite on your countertops, the potassium in the banana that you eat is radioactive. Okay? The cat litter that you put in your kitty cat box is radioactive. Okay, we're surrounded by radioactivity. People are radioactive. If you sleep next to another person in bed, you're being exposed to a higher level of radiation than if you just slept by yourself. So people have almost no understanding of actual what actual radiation exposure is. And if you go to thorimenergylines.com, there's a chart there that shows you uh, equivalent amounts of radiation exposure from like a dental X-ray, a banana. Uh, CAT scan, and it, it helps people understand how radioactive our natural world is. If you ever fly in a plane, you're exposing yourself to vast amounts of radiation. If you live in Denver, Colorado, you're exposing yourself to much more radiation than if you lived at the seaside. So, that being said, uh, the molten salt reactor technology incorporated in thorium as its primary fuel would be the most safe the least dangerous way to generate electricity, to generate process heat for creating liquid fuels, fertilizers, desalinating water. Uh, and uh, I just want to let people know that they need to educate themselves about, about what the true state of molten salt reactor technology is and how it could really radically improve people's lives. And it's not this light water reactor technology that uh, we unfortunately are using today. Well, let me just throw in my two cents about what Chris was saying there. Um, I, I think we have to differentiate between what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki from the idea of nuclear energy. Uh, obviously, there has been a linkage between the nuclear power industry and the nuclear armament industry, as we were talking about, but that's really just contingent on these uranium breeder reactors that have been uh, the paradigm, as we say, in the buildup of the uranium, uh, of the uh, of the armaments, the nuclear armaments. So really, a, a nuclear power doesn't have to be related to nuclear bombs, and the thorium uh, paradigm wouldn't involve in the creation of nuclear material for weapons at all. So I think we should sure. uh, dif- differentiate those technologies the, as well. I think you're raising a, a perfect point that the molten salt reactor technology would exactly decouple the whole weapon aspect of nuclear power from nuclear energy completely. And as I mentioned before, that the molten salt reactor is capable of utilizing all of this stuff that people called nuclear waste, we call it unspent fuel. That's because, as I said, 95% of the energy is left sitting in those parking lots. And being in Japan, I'm sure you've gone to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and you know that those are huge, thriving, modern cities. They aren't nuclear wastelands with zombies walking across them. Am I not correct? Uh, You are indeed. Hiroshima is one of uh, my favorite cities here in Japan. So it's not a radioactive, glowing uh, pit of uh, death and destruction, you know, 60 years after the bomb was dropped. It, uh, it is a thriving city. I'm not defending the, the use of nuclear weapons, but what I'm trying to point out is that people have this perception that, to this day, Hiroshima and Nagasaki are these boiling cauldrons of radioactivity, when in fact they are modern, 
beautiful cities that uh, are perfectly livable. All right, lots to be said on that, Mark. But uh, Chris, anything else you'd like to add? Um, well, I just wanted to. I, I I don't have that nuanced an understanding of nuclear power, but however, I I just wanted to say that I think there is one thing. I think there's one thing even more powerful than central banks. That is nuclear warfare. That is separate from what you guys are talking about, but nuclear warfare is not possible without uranium or nuclear bombs. Or plutonium, really, which is refined out of uranium. Mm -hmm. Right. But what I'm trying to say is that these mass, these mass uh, bomb, these, uh, massive, uh, destructions, or mass bomb, de- uh, devices of destruction are re- what really controls the world. It's, central banks are, in a way, what controls the world, but ultimately, it comes down to what constitutes what a bomb's made of. Well, I hear what you're saying there, Chris. I, I agree. I think nuclear weapons are, uh, definitely a blight on our civilization, and hopefully we can transition past it, and hopefully we can decouple nuclear power from nuclear bombs with something like molten salt reactors. But, uh, on that note, let's take a short break, and we'll be right back to wrap things up. Alright friends, here we are in the final few minutes of tonight's broadcast here on Corbett Report Radio. Once again, reminding all the listeners out there that this, the archive of this will be available as both audio and video on CorbettReport.com a few hours after tonight's broadcast wraps up. And tonight we've been talking to John Kutch of the Thorium Energy Alliance. Once again, that's ThoriumEnergyAlliance.com with plenty of links to more resources about the ideas that we've been talking about tonight. And uh, just before we wrap things up here, we have one more uh, comment from a listener, this time a tweet into my Twitter account at Corbett Report. This comes from Leander Pearson at MilkMushMeat on Twitter, who writes, uh, Can thorium reactors be used to dispose of existing nuclear waste? Which I believe we touched on, but uh, perhaps you can clarify clarify that a little bit, John. Yeah, that, that goes back to the molten salt reactor, as uh, as the Chinese would say, who are unfortunately uh, developing it much faster than the West is developing it. Uh, the molten salt reactor is not a picky eater, as they said in their press release. And, uh, and that's because the, the nuclear fuel can be anything from uranium to plutonium and, of course, thorium. And that uranium and thorium would be a really great idea to use all that stuff that most people call nuclear waste, but we call unspent fuel sitting in the parking lots. And uh, there's a couple companies out there trying to develop plans to go in and liberate that fuel and uh, from its zirconium cladding and, and put it into a useful molten salt reactor and extract the rest of that 95% of the energy that's sitting there going to waste inside parking lots. All right. Well, then, uh, just uh, wrapping things up here, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that are interested in learning more about this, and perhaps there are people out there that are motivated to actually get involved in the uh, the quest to get thorium energy uh, on the table and on the drawing board. Uh, tell people uh, what resources or that you would recommend on this or where people should go for, for more information. The uh, first place they should go is the thoriumenergyalliance.com. That's all one word, no spaces. Thorium is T-H-O-R-I-U-M, energyalliance.com. And there you'll find scores of videos by uh, 
scientists, researchers, uh, business folk, concerned citizens, talking about uh, using thorium in a molten salt reactor and in solid fuel reactors and and other ways to utilize thorium. And, uh, of course, uh, many of those videos are found on YouTube. If you type in the word thorium problem into YouTube, you'll see probably the best video currently available that's just uh, 20 minutes long that describes uh, the entire situation that we're in right now and how we can resolve it and solve both our rare earth problem, which is a whole other subject for another day, and uh, create uh, vast amounts of energy for our economies uh, utilizing thorium inside a molten salt reactor. So thorium problem at YouTube or thoriumenergyalliance.com. Excellent. Well, I hope people will go out there and at least check into this idea and find out more about it. So, John Kutch, thoriumenergyalliance.com, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. I sure do appreciate you getting the word out. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for tonight, folks. Once again, I hope you will go check out John Kutch's website, and the link will be there in the show notes at CorbettReport.com when this is posted to the archives. And I also hope that uh, that people will tune in for tomorrow night. Usually we have James Evan Pilato of FoodWorldOrder.com uh, to talk about food, health, and environment issues on Thursday nights. Uh, tomorrow night he's taking a much-needed night off. But in his stead, we will have uh, Mike Adams from naturalnews.com for a conversation about health freedoms. So I hope you'll stay tuned for that. Once again, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com and FukushimaUpdate.com signing off for tonight. So until tomorrow night, thank you all for listening and take care.